what is up team welcome back to the show today i am joined once again by my man brandon de cruz brandon thank you for being back dude absolutely brother i'm uh, glad to be back and uh looking forward to our conversation today likewise after a few technical difficulties we're here so first and foremost dude last episode you did i don't think i've ever gotten that much positive feedback on an episode um i learned so much from that so i'm so to have you back on anyways today Actually, before we get into it, for the listeners that might not have listened to your last episode, can you just give us a quick, short intro on who you are, or what you're currently up to? Absolutely. So uh, first and foremost, I'm so glad to hear the positive feedback, man. I do these podcasts. I have very little time because I have two different careers, but I try to do these to put out the information that I was confused about at one point in my career or one point in my fitness journey. But a little background on me, I've spent close to the past 13 years working professionally in one or two aspects of the fitness industry. So I've done everything from research and formulation for supplement companies. I do national sales for a New York-based supplement company called Innova Farm. And for close to the past nine years, I've worked with almost a thousand people as an online coach. So really what I try to do is I try to be like a layman's researcher. And I try to take what I see in the research and what I read in the empirical evidence and the literature and combine it with my in the trenches experience to get people to their best goals in terms of their body composition, in terms of their health, and in terms of their performance, because there's so much you know, miscommunication and confusion out there. And there's tons of people that put out this information with a lot of influence behind it, whether it be because they have big social media followings or they have you know, a ton of um, you know, personal anecdotal experience, yet it's not applicable to everyone. And what we have to realize is that information is great. You have to combine both information from the literature, from the research, as well as with experience, and then also cater to the individual themselves. So that's what I'm really trying to do. I'm trying to bridge the gap between science and practice. And I think that piece about catering it to an individual themselves is something you do an amazing job of. And I think really is missing when it's like, when we're looking at like the uh, evidence-based coaching, quote unquote, where it's, I do definitely think that's an important, huge piece of the industry and the science is so important. But again, I think people can, okay, well, the science hasn't proven this, but we've seen it to work over and over. And it's sometimes I think things can get lost in that as well. So again, man, I think you do an amazing job of that. And again, I appreciate you being here, dude. So topic, topic of the day, we have metabolism and metabolic adaptation. I think if there's a single thing in the fitness space that people are like the most confused about, it's probably metabolism. There's so much, uh, almost want to say fear mongering around metabolic adaptation. So I'm still to dig into this with you. Um, but to kick us off, can you just explain to us what is metabolism and metabolic adaptation? Yeah, so first and foremost, just to uh, hit on what you just touched on, this is a topic that is often filled with misinformation, fallacies, and myths. And that's why I'm so interested in trying to clear up the confusion for people out there because your metabolism is something that so many people are interested in because think about what we have most people come to us for. It's for fat loss and weight loss. And when you don't understand the metabolism in and of itself, it limits your ability to understand what's going on in the dieting process. So I find that when most people think about metabolism, they only do so from the perspective of like a calorie perspective in terms of how many calories they can eat. Um, but in reality, your metabolism encompasses so much more than just your energy intake and your energy expenditure. In reality, your metabolism refers to the sum of all the chemical processes your body goes through to keep you alive and the energy you expend throughout those processes. So essentially how I try to break it down to people is your metabolism is essentially a measurement of the various inputs and outputs, both from your body and your environment, which then determine your caloric needs and your caloric expenditure. And this is an adaptive and reactive system. It's never static. So I always try to get that across to people. Your, say your maintenance calorie range, the amount of calories that is needed to keep you weight stable or in what we consider energy balance, it's not a static number. It is constantly adapting to the various inputs and outputs of your day-to-day -day life. And it's important to realize this as your metabolism is always changing based on these you know, various factors, including what you eat, how hard you train, how you sleep, how active you are, among many other factors, including stress, digestion, uh, energy management, all these different things that a lot of people just consider calories in, calories out, but they're not looking at these other various factors that affect that energy balance equation. And that's what leads a lot of people to being confused about what metabolism is because they look at it through this very narrow-minded viewpoint as being one thing, 
My metabolism is how many calories I eat or I burn. And it's so many other things. And when you disregard those other things, as we had hit on in our last um, podcast that we did, there's so many things that are all encompassing. I always tell people coaching is more than just the X and O's of macros and nutrition and the sets and reps in the gym. It's everything. It's your entire lifestyle as a whole. And that's the same thing when trying to manage and better regulate your metabolism. I love it, man. That makes complete sense. And I love the point too about how this is constantly something that is in flux, right? That's a question I get a lot like about maintenance calories specifically. People seem to think it's like always one number. And so, you know, this is literally every single day your maintenance calories are probably at least slightly different depending on like how the day went. So I think that's such a good point you made. Um, so from there, can you define metabolic adaptation for us? Because I think that's a big part of this conversation as well. Yeah, absolutely. Before we go into that, though, I want to touch on just the components of metabolism. Because, sure. Like I said, it's not just the calories in, calories out. It is so much more than that. And a lot of times when people think of metabolism, and, and I know people that are listening to this, they're thinking about the resting metabolic rate. Right. And it's so much more than that because it's actually comprised of four different components that equal what's called your total daily energy expenditure or the amount of calories you burn per day. So this total comes from both resting, which would include your resting metabolic rate, as well as your non-resting energy expenditures. So this is made up of the first one, as many people know, is your resting metabolic rate. And that accounts for roughly 60% of the calories that we burn throughout the day. Now, resting metabolic rate refers to the amount of energy you burn at rest just to keep the lights on, essentially. And it's the energy that we need to keep our organs functioning properly. So basically, it's the amount of calories that we burn if we were to be laid up in bed all day like in a science experiment where we were immobilized from an injury. And then your resting metabolic rate is mostly determined by your body weight and body composition and is most heavily impacted by your internal organs and the amount of muscle you have. So if you were to increase your body weight, for instance, your resting metabolic rate would increase because your body would require more energy to function. But at the same time, and this is really important to hit on and for people to understand, if you reduce your body weight, for instance, in the case of a diet, like we're going to speak on later today, your resting metabolic rate would decrease naturally as a result of being lighter and thus needing less energy at rest. Right. So this is something we often hear people in the fitness industry, they'll market ways to boost your metabolism, take this supplement to boost your metabolism. And all these different things, um, these claims based around metabolism and what people don't realize is the way to most accurately boost your metabolism is actually to gain weight. So that would entail gaining some body fat. And that's not what people want to hear, but that's the reality of the matter. So then the second component of your total daily energy expenditure is called the thermic effective feeding or also called the diet induced thermogenesis. And this is your ener the energy your body burns through thermogenesis or heat production to digest and assimilate the food you eat. And this accounts for approximately 10% of your total daily energy expenditure based on the macronutrient split of your diet as each macronutrient has a different thermic effect essentially. So for instance, we, also, we often hear that protein is really good food during a dieting phase, not only for the muscle maintenance benefits it has and the benefits it has on satiety, but also because it has the highest thermic effect. So protein, you, you essentially burn 20 to 30% of the calories you intake from protein just through the process of digestion, whereas carbs have a thermic effect of 5 to 10%, and then fats have the lowest thermic effect at 0 to 3%, depending on the fat source. From there, we go on to NEAT. So NEAT is essentially your non-exercise activity thermogenesis. And this includes all non-intentional you know, components of physical activity. This is like activities of daily living, like walking around, getting your steps in, fidgeting, twitching, uh, adjusting your posture, You know, even just speaking with your hands, like I'm Italian. So I, I often speak <laughs> with my hands and I'm burning calories doing that. And a lot of people don't realize that this is a part of your calorie expenditure. And then pretty much everything you do outside of the gym is neat. So now here's the thing with neat and what a lot of people overlook, especially in a dieting phase. We're going to go through this later because neat is the most variable between individuals and the most modifiable component of our energy expenditure and accounts for roughly between 15 and 25% of the total calories you burn per day, which a lot of people don't realize. So this is an often overlooked component where if you're not moving around and you go into a dieting phase and you become a lot less active, whether it be intentionally or unintentionally, you could be missing out on 25% of the calories that you would be burning per day otherwise. 
And then the last component of your total daily energy expenditure is exercise activity. And then exercise activity thermogenesis is the energy that we expend doing intentional exercise. And the thing with this is there's a big myth around this where people think that they, and we see this in research studies, we see this in studies on resistance training, and we see this also on the calorie estimation of literature, where people think they expend a lot more calories per day through exercise than they actually do. But in reality, you know, your exercise only accounts for between five to 10% of your total daily energy expenditure. So if you look at that in comparison, you know, if someone weight trains three to four days a week, that accounts for about 5% of the calories that they burn per day, as compared to meat, which accounts for up to 25%. So we're looking at a five-fold difference between the two. And so many people, and now here's the thing, I'm a body composition coach. I'm very into resistance training. I think there's so many benefits behind doing resistance training regularly, but it's not just for the calorie expenditure aspect. It's for building muscle tissue. It's for preventing osteoporosis. It's for building bone mineral density. It's for helping with longevity. It's for all these other benefits, not just the calorie expenditure, because if we really look at it from a calorie perspective, like a calorie burning perspective, your meat accounts for so much more calories burned per day than your exercise does. So this is something I'm always trying to bring awareness to people. When we talk about metabolism, it isn't just your resting metabolic rate. And especially that's especially important because your resting metabolic rate, it does account for 60% of your total daily energy expenditure, but it's the one that we have the least amount of influence on. We cannot control the size of our organs, which account for the most amount of uh, calories that we burn per day. We cannot account for a lot of different components within that. And like I mentioned before, really the way to modify this is to gain a substantial amount of weight, which a lot of people, especially in the context of what we're talking about today, they're looking to lose weight. So they're not gonna be able to modify that, whereas your knee, your exercise activity thermogenesis, the foods you eat, these are all factors within your control. Absolutely. And that's, there's so much marketing around metabolism and like, oh, be careful or you'll do this and it'll slow your metabolism. So, well, if your metabolism isn't slowing some, you're probably literally not losing weight, right? Like, and it's interesting how it's all marketed around weight loss. Um, question for you, uh, just a scenario I've come a lot across with quite a few clients that I want to get your take on. So we have someone who is super busy individual there. Let's say they are like their goal is to lose a large sum of weight, like a hundred pounds or more. Um, and it's basically, they're so busy that, okay, when you can get their nutrition on point and they can either go from walking like a thousand steps a day to 5,000 steps a day, or they can take that, let's say hour and devote it to resistance training which direction, like, uh, which direction will you push that individual in? So here's the thing. It's going to be based on, first of all, where they're starting at. So if mm-hmm. they're extremely sedentary and I see that certain, like we spoke on in our last episode, I'm very into health biomarkers. Mm-hmm. So if I see someone's blood glucose levels are, you know, he- heavily elevated. So they're over the hundred nanograms per deciliter mark in the morning, meaning that they're pre-diabetic and they have a high resting heart rate and they have a high blood pressure. I'm going to push them more in the aerobic activity. I'm going to get them to do steps because that's going to help to lower those metrics first. And the other thing we have to consider is that when you do resistance training, it actually increases your sympathetic tone. So sympathetic tone is essentially the part of your autonomic nervous system that signals fight or flight. So these people are generally already highly stressed. So if it's the person, they have 100 pounds to lose. So the stress of being overweight and and most likely insulin resistant is already compounding the issues that they're experiencing just from the weight gain or the fat accumulation alone. So in that aspect, I would want to get them preconditioned through doing more steps, helping with lowering blood glucose, lowering um, blood sugar excursions, getting their blood pressure down, getting their resting heart rate down so that they're in a more parasympathetic or rest and digest state. So I would do that. But honestly, it's always a combination of both. I never want to just look at one variable. It's always Let's modify the nutrition to the best of their ability. Mm-hmm. Let's get in some aerobic activity, low level intensity activity that doesn't drain you. So no hit sprints or anything of that sort, not even intentional cardio, like getting on a step mill or a treadmill. Let's get some walking outside, 10 minute walks after meals, getting some, some sunlight exposure. Let's get some time in nature. And then let's try to incorporate some type of resistance training activity to help increase muscle tissue while losing body weight. Because I do think that it's a disservice to have someone go into a weight loss phase and not have some sort of resistance training because they are more likely to lose lean body mass. And we see that in studies, the number one predictor of fat regain and what's called body fat overshooting is the loss of lean mass. So what that means is if you are to engage in a 
diet fees and a fat loss fees, and you lose a considerable amount of lean body mass, which would include, that's mostly muscle tissue. Right. If you're going to lose a lot of lean body mass, whether that be through not resistant training, through chronic dieting, through uh, aggressive, you know, slashing your calories, and you lose a lot of that lean body mass, in the post-diet period, you go through what's called hyperphagia, which is an, a, an aggressive increase in your appetite, and you'll be starving, and it's because your body's trying to recruit that lean body mass. And essentially, what the body has is ther certain thermostats. It has a lipostat, which is essentially regulated by leptin. And that's the amount of body fat that it wants at, say, its body fat set point. But it also has like a muscle stat, which regulates how much lean body mass that it, it wants to have. So when you lose that, it's trying to drive you to increase your energy intake or the amount of calories you need to regain that. And what we often see after a diet, think about it. We're going to go through all the hormonal downregulations. You're in a hormonally downregulated state and your metabolism is lowered during or after a diet. So what ends up happening is you preferentially regain more fat than you do muscle in the period after dieting. So now not only are you trying to regain muscle, but you're regaining a ton of fat in the process. So I always say like, if you're telling people, if you're instructing people to lose a substantial amount of weight without some sort of resistance training, and this doesn't have to be like an overbearing amount of weight training. It could be a couple days per week, a few sets to failure. Remember when you're a beginner, you can essentially recomp in a fat loss phase, even at a deficit. Right. fairly easily the stimulus that you need is so low so that's where i would look to doing a combination of nutrition interventions resistance training and some aerobic training through steps okay so insightful man especially all the points about body fat overshooting and that that is that in and of itself is another is such a interesting topic and probably an entirely new podcast but is there one more question on this before we get back to it. Is there a, there's like a certain threshold that they think your body, like, so say you want lost 20 pounds of lean mass, your body wants to regain, like it's, if I recall correctly, isn't there a number like 75 ish percent or like an approximate amount that, okay, your body will like that hunger will stay very high until your body has regained most of that lean mass, right? Regardless of how much extra fat and shoot you're adding alongside it. Absolutely. So really what we see in a lot of the literature, and this is something that if anyone's interested in this, I find this fascinating because I come from the competitive world. I competed mm -hmm. you know, many times over the last 10 years and I, I prep a lot of contest prep competitors. And we always hear about this anabolic rebound. Right. What I always try to get across to people is there is no anabolic rebound. It is, it is anabolic, but your adipose tissue is anabolic, meaning you're right. going to add more fat tissue than you are muscle tissue. And we see that in research studies from Delu as well as from Trexler. In Deleuze cases, he's the one that kind of postulated the body fat overshooting effect, which is also known as collateral fat. Pretty much what that means is the body has homeo the body wants homeostasis in all aspects. So we have what's called like a body fat settling point. Then we also have a settling point in terms of how much lean mass the body is used to holding. So for instance, if you were to lose 40 pounds and half of it was muscle, which we often see, you know, when people don't resist and train or eat adequate protein during a diet, they lose about half and half. Whereas right. if you were to resist and train and eat a higher amount of protein during a diet, you might be able to skew that over to 80% of fat mass being lost and 20% of lean mass being lost. Because we have to keep in consideration, fat mass actually has about 12% muscle in it, muscle tissue in it. So anytime you lose fat mass, you are going to lose some lean mass. But the whole intention of proper dieting is to maintain as much muscle because let's think about it just from like a practical perspective. What do you want? Do you want weight loss or do you want fat loss? We want to improve our body composition and that includes decreasing fat and retaining or increasing muscle. So what ends up happening is when you lose that amount of lean mass, your body is, first of all, it's losing fat mass. So it's decreasing leptin and all these other hormones, but we're also seeing reductions in, you know, anabolic hormones and increases in catabolic hormones like cortisol. So when you get out of the backside of that diet, your body wants to recoup what's kept it in a safe spot and back to homeostasis. So often what we see is that there's actually a, a research study by Trexler done on con, uh, contest prep competitors in the post-show dieting period. And what he saw was in the first week after the diet, they recouped what was considered lean mass, but it was actually water retention. So they regained water weight from the increase in carbohydrates, the increase in sodium, and the water that comes along with every gram of glycogen. In the periods from week one of post-contest to week six, they did not recoup any more lean mass. What they recouped was 
entirely fat mass. So that shows you that the body, you know, they were experiencing increased hunger, appetite, mm-hmm. and they were, they were experiencing the inability to stay full or feel satisfied from their meals, which we'll go into. That's a part of metabolic adaptation. And so we'll see that you start regaining fat very quickly and preferentially. And you see these people, this is why we have yo-yo dieters. They lose very drastically and then they regain it. And oftentimes they regain more fat than they lost. So I always try to get across to people, slow and steady, first of all, is a really good approach to fat loss. And let's maintain muscle because it's so crucial, especially because most people don't just want, you know, people might chase the scale, but when they look at their body, if they've just gotten skinny fat in the process of the weight loss phase, they don't feel like they accomplished their goal. So, so insightful, man. Cool. I apologize. I derailed you a lot, but that's, I, I learned a lot from that tangent myself. So um, to bring it back. Okay. So basically the components of metabolism we have that you just touched on, we have resting metabolic rate. We have the thermic effect of feeding. We have exercise activity and non-exercise activity. So in, in a nutshell, that sums up the components of your metabolism, correct? Cool. So from yeah, there, sure. you touched on metabolic adaptation a couple of times. Then can you go ahead and define or explain to us what that is? Absolutely. So let's just think about it from like a high level view. When we diet, we essentially lower the amount of energy our body needs in order to drop body fat, improve our physique, and lower our body weight. But with that reduction in body fat and body weight comes a reduction in the amount of energy needed to power our bodies as we're essentially lighter, smaller individuals. However, what we see in the research is that something referred to as adaptive thermogenesis or metabolic adaptation, as it's commonly referred to, um, happens, which refers to the fact that we experience a larger drop in our total energy expenditure than we'd expect purely based off the total weight we've lost. So like I was talking about, our total daily energy expenditure, which you just hit on, is comprised of those four, there's four, four components. So these diet-induced metabolic adaptations generally will cause between a 10 to 15% reduction in the total calories burned per day than we'd expect, which is essentially a survival mechanism. And what a lot of people don't realize is this is completely normal. You have to think about from like an evolutionary perspective, our body doesn't want to lose weight. It wants to put stop gaps in place to prevent us from starving essentially. So this may make dieting more difficult the longer that you're in a cut, but it's important to note that this doesn't halt the process. And I often speak on metabolic adaptation because I think it's so important for people to realize, listen, if you're experiencing plateaus or a slowing down of progress, don't think that there's something wrong with you. There is no such thing as metabolic damage. There is no such thing as starvation. These have been disproven in the literature going back to the 1940s. What you're experiencing is metabolic adaptation and it's your body's natural survival response. It's an indicator that you have a healthy metabolism. If we didn't experience metabolic adaptation, first of all, we would know that we're not losing a substantial amount of fat. So that's the first thing. So you're not being efficient in your fat loss. And B, we would not be able to fend off against things like starvation if we were a couple hundred years ago where food wasn't as you know readily accessible like think about it from just like a, a logical perspective our software hasn't been updated we're not an iphone that gets an update every year so like your body doesn't know it's not like technology biology has not followed technology so with that your body doesn't know that there's a grocery store down the street or you have a fridge full of food all it knows is that it needs to preserve some type of energy for essential functionings, brain function, and things of that sort. So it's going to lower your energy expenditure. This does make the dieting process harder, but it doesn't make it impossible. I always get back to my clients, like I always try to drive this home. No one is exempt from starvation. There's never been a case of that. So if you were not to eat, you're gonna continue losing weight. The thing is that metabolic adaptation is a real thing, and that's why understanding this process is so important, so that A, you understand how to mitigate it, and B, you understand that there's not something wrong with you when this occurs. You understand that it's a realistic and expected component of the fat loss journey and you're prepared for it because our body follows our brain. So if our thoughts make it seem like if we think something's wrong with us, we're going to respond accordingly. And there's so much studies on the placebo effect and how that affects how we respond to things. And it's so important to align and, and be very aware that our psychology and our physiology cannot be separated. So I often try to educate people on this so that they know, hey, I should expect some metabolic adaptation. If I go into a 500 calorie deficit, I'm not going to lose a pound per week every single week because there is no process in, in this where it's linear. You will never see a linear dieting process, just like on the back end when you're in a gaining phase, it's not like you're going to put five pounds on the bar every single week in every one of your lifts. No progress is linear. The body does not adapt in that, in that way. 
Okay. So my question for you, when it comes to metabolic adaptation, are there typically, so basically most common reasons I've seen battle solve clients is either A, it is metabolic adaptation, or B, there's maybe the client is struggling to be consistent or there's like tracking errors sneaking in. How do you go about helping people identify like, hey, this is your fat loss is, it does actually seem to be stalled from metabolic adaptation versus there's probably something else we wanna look out look at here outside of this before we just like adjust calories or increase cardio or anything of that nature. Does that question make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So there's many reasons as to why we could experience a plateau, uh, a weight loss plateau and you hit on them. It could be metabolic adaptation, which I'm covering on the back end with my coaching practices and my programming. Mm. And that's why I think it's so important for us to understand this, especially as coaches, is you have to know what to look out for, especially from a biofeedback perspective. So as we go through the different components of metabolic adaptation, we'll hit on what are some of the things that we're seeing. Right. But the other aspect of it is you have to know the adherence and consistency that your client you know, is obtaining. So there are a lot of cases where we see that people are over, you know, underestimating their calorie intake and overestimating their calorie expenditure. And that's where we have to really work on the psychological aspect as well as the information aspect. So I always say that educated um, clients are more uh, adherent clients. So when they understand a lot of different factors, like I'll tell my clients about how common tracking errors are, or I'll make sure that they're weighing things out to the gram. For instance, the most depressing thing you'll ever do is weigh out peanut butter, honestly. Yeah. If you take two tablespoons, you'll see you're drastically over. So it's things like that. It's little things. It's I say attention to detail makes all the difference. So I always cover that prior to someone going into a fat loss phase. I'm making sure that if they're tracking their, their caloric intake or their macronutrients, that they're doing so accurately. And now the thing is we have to realize that nothing within, especially calorie tracking, is going to be 100% accurate. However, what we want to do is be consistent because, for instance, if we're 20% off because, for instance, the FDA allows for a 20% deviation on their labels. Now, if you're 20% off 100% of the time, it's not going to matter because we're making you know, adjustments from that 20% error. So it's more about being consistent and adherent to the program that you're on and then any other weight loss plateaus or you know, uh, stalls or challenges that we face, we can look at and say, this could be some indication that it is metabolic adaptation. The other thing is we have to keep in, in um, mind that metabolic adaptation takes time to accumulate. So it's not this thing that you go into a deficit and you experience all these side effects of metabolic adaptation. So if someone is experiencing a plateau off of week one, it's obvious that it's due to a lack of consistency or adherence or tracking or some misestimations in calories, or just doing what a lot of people do, which is diet during the week and then overconsume on the weekends and not even think about it. I always talk about like how people take bites, licks, uh, they'll do little nibbles in between meals or while cooking. I, I deal with a lot of you know professionals as well as a lot of mothers, things of that sort. And they're not thinking about the fact that while they were cooking, they were tasting something and they weren't right. tracking it where they were waiting till the end of the day to track all their intake. Now we know that dietary recall, our memories are not the best. So it's just being very intentional in the way that you go about your fat loss progress, because that's where it is make or break. Such a good point. And that's typically what I'll say is I think one of the most common times we'll see this come up is towards the start of someone's fat loss phase. And we're still working through all this education of, Hey, here's how we track accurately and do all these things. And it was, all right. So two weeks ago, we saw you lose, let's say three pounds of this intake. Last week, you lost two pounds and all of a sudden it's solved. So it's like, hey, we should probably make a calorie adjustment, right? And it's like, no, that probably tells me, like, as a coach, I need to do a better job, like, teaching you through or talking you through, like, hey, where could we be, be mismeasuring this? Because, like you said, if it's okay, two weeks ago, we lost two pounds on this intake. Before that, we lost two and a half to three pounds. It's not like, boom, okay, all of a sudden, here's metabolic adaptation. Now we just come to a screeching halt, right? It's very slowly and gradually something that's going to happen. No, absolutely. So if you see that type of rate of loss, so say for instance, two pounds a week, we know they're in a 7,000 calorie deficit. So they're at a thousand calorie deficit per day to amount to that two pound loss per week. So it's not like metabolic adaptation. When we go into the different components, you're going to see it's only a couple hundred calories. So that's why I know as a coach on my end, listen, this could not erase the deficit, but there are some cases where it is entirely due to metabolic adaptation. And we have to make adjustments because what was once a calorie deficit for that person is no longer a deficit due to the adaptive changes in that person's metabolism. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. So let's get into that. And what are these main components that are affected by metabolic adaptation? All right. So there's three main components of metabolic adaptation. 
There's the slowing or the down regulation of your, meta, uh, of your metabolism. Now let's keep in mind that's your full uh, metabolic rate. That's your total daily energy expenditure. The second one is the hormonal changes. And then the third one is mitochondrial changes. So the first thing that happens when you create a deficit is your total daily energy expenditure decreases as a way for your body to conserve energy as it doesn't know that you're dieting and get shredded. It thinks you're in a state of potential famine. So it's trying to protect you. So as we hit on previously, the four, you know, TDE is comprised of four main components, which are thus impacted by metabolic adaptation. So from the resting metabolic rate perspective, this lowers when you start losing weight during diet as you're losing body mass, which is metabolically active tissue, which burns calories in and of itself. So when you're becoming lighter and leaner, the amount of energy to keep the lights on is much lower. So I often find that most people worry the most about their metabolic rate dropping as a result of metabolic adaptation. But in reality, it doesn't drop as much as many expect. So we have controlled studies in metabolic wards, such as Rosenbaum in 2008, that showed that they found a 10, uh, 100 calorie reduction in resting metabolic rate in people who had uh, lost at least 10% of their body weight. So this is very small, especially when we get to the meat component. You're going to see people's you know, resting energy expenditure drop by more than 500 calories. So when we really take into consideration Resting metabolic rate does lower. So yes, your metabolism has slowed, but it's more so that your total daily energy expenditure has reduced. We even have other studies, you know, Rosenbaum and Leibel are some of the key prominent researchers in this field. And in 2016, they did a follow-up study to see if there's a limit to how much your resting metabolic rate can reduce. And what they showed was your body can only slow its resting metabolic rate so much as it needs this energy to survive. So like I said before, your resting metabolic rate accounts for 60% of your total daily energy expenditure, but it's for the, the functions that you need to do regardless of what you're doing. If you were to lay around in bed all day, you need that energy just to you know, power your organs. So what we saw in this specific study was that your resting metabolic rate will fall within that 10% of weight loss, but it does not continue going down significantly with another 10% of weight loss. So for instance, when they looked at study, when they looked at participants, and they looked at their resting metabolic rate, it did decrease when they had lost 10% of their body weight. And that's to be expected, they're lighter human beings. However, when they got to 20% weight loss, so they doubled the amount of weight loss that they had lost, they didn't see a significant decrease in the resting metabolic rate. So yes, up to a certain point, your resting metabolic rate continues to drop, but after 10% of weight loss, you're not going to continue seeing your resting metabolic rate fall. So that's where we see people say, you know, um, I'm not able to lose fat anymore because my metabolism is slow or because my resting metabolic rate is slow. And that's not the case. We have no good evidence that shows that having a lowered resting metabolic rate leads to an inability to lose fat. Now, will it make it more difficult? Absolutely, but it's not going to stop you. You don't have a damaged metabolism or you don't have a broken metabolism. That's just not the case. It lowers to you know, a degree which we can measure, but it's not mm -hmm. something that's hugely significant. Now, the next part of your total daily energy expenditure that decreases is the thermic effect of food. Now, what a lot of people don't realize is they never take this into consideration when considering metabolic adaptation. But what you have to realize is that it accounts for 10% of the calories you burn per day. So if you're eating less, theoretically, you're burning less. And that's what a lot of people don't realize about the energy balance equation. The less energy you put in, the less energy you get out. And a lot of times people look at calories in versus calories out as these independent variables. They try to separate the two. What they don't realize is they're tied to another. So as you increase energy intake, you increase energy expenditure. As you decrease energy intake, decrease energy expenditure. So, you know, what a lot of people don't, you know, and I always make this uh, reference, is that your TEF or your thermic effect of feeding gets downregulated the first day you go into, into a diet. So say, for instance, we're looking to lose one pound per week. We know that theoretically that's a 3,500 calorie deficit, which would be 500 calories per day spread over the course of a week. Well, on day one of your diet, if you went from eating 3,000 calories to 2,500 calories to get that 500 calorie deficit, you're now eating 500 calories less food. So you're now burning 10% less of those 500 calories, which is 50 calories per day as a result of lowering that. So right then and there, you went from a 500 calorie deficit to a 450 calorie deficit. And that's what a lot of people don't realize, don't take into consideration. Everything is, you know, your body's adapting to everything. It's a reactive and adaptive system. Now, the next part is the most important component, and I really want to drive this home because it's the one that everyone overlooks the most. And finally, there's, there's becoming like people talking about this more. I've spent years talking about this because I know that this impacted me the most and got me the most results with my clients when I started paying attention to it. And this is your need.
So the next aspect of you know, energy expenditure that's downregulated is neat. And these reductions actually account for approximately 85 to 90% of what we consider metabolic adaptation. So keep that in mind. You know what I mean? What we see from your resting metabolic rate is about 5% of a decrease from your total daily energy expenditure. But 90% of what is considered metabolic adaptation, 90% of the calories that you're lowering per day is from meat. So this is why it's so important to take, you know, pay attention to the subconscious activity and your movement, your physical activity, and making sure that you're staying active, especially if fat loss is your goal. And that's why previously with the client that you said that wanted to lose weight and that didn't have a lot of time, I would want to get their need up because they're going to be susceptible to dropping steps and they're already extremely sedentary. So if they were at a thousand steps per day, they're already going to be, you know, if they go any lower than that, they're going to be entirely, they're pretty much seated all day. Right. So we actually have research that shows that an individual's energy expenditure can drop by 500 or more calories just due to the impact that dieting can have on meat levels. So say that you were looking for one pound of fat loss a week and you're someone that adapts rapidly, you have adaptive metabolism, and this causes a drop in need. You can essentially erase your deficit just from the reduction in need, which a lot of people don't realize. And like I mentioned previously, in terms of your total daily energy expenditure, need is the most modifiable factor, meaning we have the most control of it. And it's also the most variable between individuals. So we actually have a study from Black et al. that showed that need can vary up to 2,000 calories between individuals of the same biological sex, the same body weight, and the same body composition. So you could have someone that is, Jeremiah, you could have someone that's your size and that is much more physically active than you. And you might maintain your body weight at 3,000 calories per day, but they might maintain the same body weight and body composition at 5,000 calories a day. And that's a massive difference. Right. So we often have people say, oh, that person has a fast metabolism. No, it's, it's not due to changes in the rest of the metabolic rate. It's due to, you know, differences in their need levels. It's not that you have a slow metabolism, you have low need levels. So the last thing that's downregulated during a diet is your exercise activity. So we essentially experience a decrease in calories burned during exercise due to lowered power output, as we all know that we can't lift as heavy or as intensely during a harsh diet. Then there's also research that shows that you experience up to a 20% increase in skeletal muscle work efficiency. So really what this, this increase in work efficiency means is that your muscles expend less energy to do the same amount of work, which means that you become better at moving and exercising both in terms of your weight training and cardio. So this will essentially decrease the amount of calories that you're burning during these exercise sessions. That's why I'm constantly you know, trying to bring home to clients, don't trust your calorie calculators on, on your activity tracker. Don't look at how many calories you burned. You know, we see that in weight training, the average weight training session burns between 60 and 300 calories, depending on your volume of work without metabolic adaptation getting taken into consideration. So that's going to decrease. But if you look, a lot of people will throw up their Apple watch data or throw up one of their trackers or they're in a boot camp class and they say, I just burned 800 calories in an hour. And they think that they're in a much larger deficit as a result, or they do the opposite and they compensate for that by either laying around the rest of the day because they're exhausted or they, they eat back some of their calories. And we see that often. Right. And what they don't realize is those things are so inaccurate. They can't take into consideration the actual accuracy of how many calories you're really burning, as well as the metabolic adaptation, which is lowering that output all the more. So say you were burning 200 calories per weight training session, that 20% increase in muscle, uh, skeletal muscle work efficiency might be lowering your sessions to 160 calories. So that's why it's so important to take all these things into consideration. That's the best explanation I've ever heard of why you shouldn't, you shouldn't look at the calories burned on. I know that's something that I've been asked so many times that I've answered it, but I, I've never heard it explained that well. You crushed it. I think it's also cool to understand, like, it's so cool to educate people on this because people really start to see, like you said, like that neat component of this accounts for, you said 90% of metabolic adaptation, right? 85 to 90%. And everything else is such a small component, which is why it's so important for awareness. Right. Most people aren't thinking about it. Like for instance, when you're in a diet, I've, you know, I've done many diets. I noticed that, you know, early on that I would be a little bit more compensatory. I mean, I was being lazy. You know, I, I laid on the couch more often where my steps drop. And that's why I think activity trackers are so beneficial from a tracking activity perspective. Mm -hmm. I always tell people, use the data for what it's most useful for. Right. Use a Fitbit, use an Apple Watch, use an Aura Ring to determine how many steps I am. 
I'm at. And it doesn't have to be exactly accurate, but like I hit on in calorie tracking before, we want to be consistent. So say for instance, before a diet, you're hitting 10,000 steps a day according to your Fitbit. Let's maintain that or slowly increment that up during a diet. Don't worry about it being 100% perfect and accurate. However, we want to see if you're going below that, it's, it's an issue because you're obviously burning less calories, you're more efficient, so you're burning less calories even if you were doing 10,000 calories. 10,000 steps, but you're also lowering your expenditure all the more. And there are so many components of meat that are what's called subconscious. So they happen mm -hmm. without our consideration, without us even realizing. I'll tell you, there's video footage of me doing presentations and I was blinking slower during a diet. I was not speaking with, you see that I speak with my hands constantly. I wasn't doing that during the diet. So I was losing, I was less fidgeting. My, my posture was slumped over. There were things that I would have never picked up on, on a day-to-day -day basis. But this is one aspect, especially your steps, you have control over. So you can modify them and make sure that you're, you're experiencing the least amount of metabolic adaptation. And I find that it's pretty cool that the part, you know, the component that makes up the most of metabolic adaptation is the one that's most in our control. Because if it was our resting metabolic rate and it just kept plummeting, like a lot of people think, we would have no ability to, to change that. I love it so much. It's just such an empowering thing for people to learn. So you really touched on the metabolic changes that we'll see from metabolic, metabolic adaptation. How does this impact your hormones, if at all? Yeah, so this is an area that I find a lot of people find the most interesting. And generally, they find it interesting because it's once you've entered a diet, you've done a, a long diet, whether it be for a photo shoot or for a contest prep, you start experiencing changes or side effects essentially, where you start wondering what's going on and it really makes you curious. And I'll tell you the first time I dieted to stage, I started noticing, you know, different experiences, negative ramifications that I, I had no idea were tied back to the diet itself. I thought there was something wrong with me. So I, like you said before, I think when you bring awareness to some of these subjects, it gives people a feeling of empowerment because they understand, hey, this is part of the process, but now I have to either do things during the diet to mitigate this or I have to make sure that I'm restoring these issues or these changes after. Right. So the first hormonal change that we, we see occur during a diet is a decrease in leptin. Now, leptin is a hormone which acts as the main regulator for both your appetite and satiety, as well as your energy expenditure levels, and is the most influential hormone involved in metabolic adaptation. So really when it comes down to it, everything that happens with metabolic adaptation is essentially because of leptin. And now your levels of leptin are controlled by two main factors, the size of our fat cells as leptin is secreted by fat or adipose tissue and the short-term amount of energy availability in the system, meaning the amount of calories you're taking in on a day-to-day -day basis. So what we see is that leptin seems to fall off quite significantly within days of entering a deficit. So if we look at research studies on metabolic ward studies, and we look at the levels of leptin, we'll generally see a substantial reduction within four to five days. As when we go into a deficit, it's essentially a shock to the body. So it has like a rapid uh, decrease in leptin, but then it'll continue to drop at a much slower rate throughout the course of the diet. Now, the thing with leptin is it plays a major role as a feedback and signaling mechanism to the hypothalamus, which is essentially our control center in our brain. So when leptin levels are high, it signals that we have a sufficient amount of calories and allows us to feel things like satiety, normal levels of appetite, you know, our activity and our movement is normal, and our hormonal production is optimized. Yet when leptin lowers as a result of going into a diet, you know, it starts sending less of a signal to the brain. And once the hypothalamus realizes that there's less of this signal being received from leptin, it takes it as a sign of energy deficiency, which we can kind of think of that as like perceived as you know, famine or a potential case of starvation, so now what your body is trying to do is, like I said previously, it's trying to react in a survival state. So it slows down your metabolic rate and other metabolic processes in order to conserve energy. Now, the other thing with leptin is it just doesn't just signal this energy deficiency, but it also causes a huge cascade of events, which affect many of our stress and our hunger hormones, as well as our sex hormones. So on the sex hormone side, we see decreases in testosterone. And then what normally this will uh, manifest in, you know, I'll talk to clients and stuff. I'll always ask them, how your libido? How's your libido? And often like during the end of the diet, you'll notice that your libido has completely dropped. And it's a sign that testosterone has decreased and it's lowering your luteinizing hormone and your follicle stimulating hormone as a result of the diet. And women will see that as a decrease in estrogen. And this is why some women during a harsh diet, especially like competitors, will actually 
experience a loss of their menstrual cycle. So that'll be the sign that estrogen has become really low and it also lowers progesterone as well. And then the other thing that controls our metabolism is your thyroid production decreases. So what we see is, you know, the TSH will uh, rise. So you'll see your levels of TSH. So if you do blood work, the markers that most doctors will get is your thyroid stimulating hormone, but it's, that's not indicative of your actual metabolically active thyroid. So TSH will increase because it's trying to increase your thyroid output, but the conversion of T4 to metabolically active T3, and T3 is the component of thyroid that controls your metabolism, will get interrupted due to the stress of calorie deficit, and more of it, more of that T4 will get actually converted and held by T, uh, reverse T3. So you'll have less metabolically active thyroid, which causes a further decrease in your metabolic rate, as well as your calorie expenditure and your movement. Then on the stress hormone side, we see cortisol increasing. And now most people know cortisol as the stress hormone, and it does play other roles in that. But in this example, it is, you know, essentially an indicator that stress has risen because what a lot of people don't realize is dieting is perceived as a stressor to your body, which causes this increase in cortisol. So when cortisol is chronically elevated, it can downregulate the process, you know, the production of sex hormones and metabolic hormones and plays a huge role with testosterone and thyroid and also increases the likelihood of muscle loss. And then we even have research that shows that going into a 20% calorie deficit can increase muscle protein breakdown by 20%, which can lead to more loss of muscle itself, which is why it's so important that we not only manage stress during a diet, but we resistance train. And we also take in adequate amounts of protein so that we can offset this increase in muscle protein breakdown. Now, when I notice that people are really stressed, a lot of times people don't see, receive or perceive stress in the same manner that you or I would, because we're very aware to it. So a lot of people only think about emotional stress. I have a deadline at work. I'm in a fight with my spouse. My kids, you know, are acting up. They think about the mental and psychological stresses and they don't really, they're not keyed into the physiological or the physical stresses. And that's where I'm always looking at pictures and water weight and fluctuations between the two, because we generally see that cortisol will manifest itself as you know, an increase in water retention. When I start seeing that, I know I have to pull back and utilize other strategies to help mitigate that because a client could be, sometimes I ask them, I see it in their pictures. They're retaining water, their scale weights up, and I ask, are you stressed? And they tell me no. And I say, are, are you sure you're not stressed? Like, how's your training going? You know, how's life going? And then all of a sudden, when I start peeling back the layers of the onion, they said, dude, I just had a death in the family. You know, uh, training has been going like shit. I haven't been sleeping at night. These are all reasons to elevate cortisol and it's manifesting in that increase in water retention because it acts on the mineral corticoid receptor. So we have to realize that there's so many different effects and there's warning signs from the body that are showing us, hey, stress is elevated, the metabolic adaptation is present and we have to utilize that biofeedback as a way to say, listen, we have to implement some different dietary, you know, whether it be nutrition, supplementation, um, training or lifestyle interventions to help mitigate those things. Now, the last area of hormones that are impacted by metabolic adaptation are hunger hormones. And I'm sure everyone that's dieted and listened to this can attest to that, whether they realize exactly what's happening or what's not. Because everyone experiences hunger. That's the number one complaint that I hear from people during a diet is that they're hungry. And what I try to get across to people is this is completely natural and normal. You should feel hungry during a diet. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to mitigate that with different food sources and food selection and different techniques, whether it be meal patterning, meal timing, things of that sort. However, this is a normal reaction from the body, especially due to the effect that metabolic adaptation has on your hunger hormones. So what we have to realize is that leptin is a satiety signal. So as leptin levels decrease, it, it causes a countering rise in ghrelin, which is our main hunger hormone, which not only increases, but drives appetite. And then we also see other satiety-related hormones like PYY and insulin decrease. And so we're not getting as much of the satiety signal during meals. We're also having this increased drive to eat because your body's trying to restore energy. And then during dieting, it's also been shown that gut satiety hormones like CCK and GLP-1 are blocked, which essentially don't allow for the appropriate fullness signals to be sent to the brain. So often what you'll notice is that even when you do a refeed or you do a diet break, or you're at the end of your diet and you finish the diet and you go into a maintenance phase or a reverse diet, people will complain that 
the, they've increased their amount of food, but they're still not feeling the same fullness that they'd expect. And it's because these hormones like GLP-1 and CCK are being blocked. So you're getting, you're, in, you're taking in enough calories for the homeostatic mechanisms of hunger, but you have this hedonic drive to eat, which is based on pleasure. So you want to eat more because those hormones aren't being, you know, essentially secreted. And that's where we utilize strategies like higher food volume. We, we try to, ex, you know, expand, you know, the stomach receptors so that it hits on, you know, those, those stretch receptors. So you get more of a fullness signals to the brain. And then the last part of metabolic um, adaptation, which a lot of people don't, don't hit on is it's because it's more on a cellular level is mitochondrial efficiency. So when you diet, your body looks for ways to become more efficient. So it could burn less calories as you're taking in less. So it wants to conserve the calories you're taking into the best of its ability. So one of the ways that your body conserves energy during a fat loss diet is to increase that mitochondrial efficiency. So increased mitochondrial efficiency is um, a com one of the main components that actually decreases the amount of calories you burn per day because your mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cell which make ATP. And this is an extremely costly process. So when we're in a calorie deficit, the efficiency of our mitochondria increases to make a that same ATP that we need for energy production, but without expending as many calories in the process. So essentially, it's another way of increasing that efficiency. So when people hear you're becoming more efficient, a lot of times they think that's a good thing. But really, being inefficient is a good thing when it comes to you know, losing weight. However, these are things we can't avoid. So there's, it's multi-pronged. We're seeing that metabolic adaptation affects you on the metabolic level, on the hormonal level, and then also on the cellular level. And that's why it's so multifaceted. And people have to realize there's so many things and reactions going on. You have to realize... Your plateau isn't because something's wrong with you. These are, you know, evolutionarily designed mechanisms for your survival. So once people know this, it brings some type of awareness as well as empowerment to say, listen, this is completely normal. You know, I'm not, I shouldn't expect linear progress. And now I need to go about mitigating these things. Absolutely. I think I, in Lane Norton's book, Fat Loss Forever, I remember reading that years ago when he had like the little trident, like the three-pronged trident that was basically your body's defense mechanism, kind of like you just described against losing body fat. One thing I wanted to take it back to quick, you mentioned, okay, for the stressed individual who does seem to retain, be retaining more water, we'll implement different strategies to kind of help mitigate that. Would that mean like, hey, maybe we're going to give them a couple refeed days or reduce training volume? Or could you give me just a little bit more insight into like what you would do there? Absolutely. So when it comes to stress, I, we need to look at the root causes of stress first. Mm -hmm. So often what I find during a dieting phase is that people have the number one thing that's causing their increased stress is generally lack of sleep. We notice that sleep declines during a diet and sleep is also tied to many satiety mechanisms in the brain. So just one night of bad sleep, of, of sleep, what's called sleep restriction. So going from your normal amount to 30%, 33% decrease will cause a rapid increase in uh, ghrelin and a rapid decrease in leptin. But think about what I just covered. We're already seeing decreases in leptin and increases in ghrelin. So that just compounds it. Also, we've seen through sleep restriction literature that you actually have more of a drive to eat, not only higher calories, but also more sweet foods. So there's a 45% increase in your like, uh, likeness for sweeter foods, which are generally more energy-dense or calorie-dense foods. We're talking cookies, cakes, ice cream, things of that sort. So generally what that happens is, like I said, the calorie inside affects the calories outside. So when you're having this increased drive, it could stall your fat loss progress by causing you to eat more or just feeling more stressed throughout the day and increasing those levels of cortisol. So with that, what I'm trying to pinpoint back is what is the cause of this? If it's sleep, we have to look at your sleep management techniques. So then we're looking at the architecture of your sleep and their full day in total. So I'm getting sunrise in the morning, I'm making sure to set up their circadian rhythm, I'm having them do a sleep routine at night, all these things to help improve sleep quality because I find that to be one of the number one ways to lower cortisol as well as to manage sleep because we all notice that when you go through a night or even extended periods of sleep restriction, the same stressors in your life, whether it be from work or be from your relationship or be from training, you don't respond as well and you don't recover as adequately both physically and mentally. Other techniques that I use are refeeds, are diet breaks, are just different higher calorie days because that's going to help to insulin is counter-regulatory to cortisol. So it's not going to directly blunt that cortisol response, but it'll help put them in a more parasympathetic state, which is what we want to do when someone has highly elevated cortisol levels because that indicates that they're sympathetically dominant. 
or they're in that fight or flight response. And then there's also implementation of other supplementation strategies. So I come from the supplement world. You know, I've, I've formulated a lot of uh, stress supplements because stress is one of the most chronic issues that our society is dealing with. So that could you, you know, include the usage of adaptogens like ashwagandha that have been clinically shown to reduce cortisol levels or phospholytoserine. And we utilize that both around times of highest cortisol production, which would be usually post-training and then before bed. And we can utilize that to see what are uh, ways that we can reduce your stress, especially in times of higher stress. So it's a multi-pronged approach. It's a nutritional approach. It's a lifestyle intervention approach. And then it's also a supplementation approach. And the last area that I like to hit on is training. Often when I see someone that's chronically stressed, that's when we'll utilize either some auto-regulation in their training, meaning pulling back on days that they feel most stressed. We'll go into a deload phase where I take an extended period of time, whether it be seven or 14 days, and reduce training volume and training intensity to lower that. Because what we have to realize is that there's two components of stress. There's stresses that we can control and there's stresses that are out of our control. And as a coach, I, you know, when I work with a lot of parents, I work with a lot of busy individuals. I, oftentimes, it's not like I can get rid of their kid. You know what I mean, that's, that's not within our limits. And also, I can't get rid of their job or their hectic commute. I could try to reframe their mindset around it right. so to improve their perception of stress. But there's other factors, training and nutrition, which I can modulate. And those are the areas that are most within my control as a coach and most within their their control from a lifestyle perspective. So that's where I look to double down on the aspects within my control that I can impact and I can influence them and I can instruct them on properly to mitigate that those elevations and stress. And generally when I put them into a deload or I give them a refeed day or I utilize some lifestyle management techniques, we start seeing that what people refer to as the whoosh effect. They automatically lose scale weight and then that helps them mentally and physically. Absolutely. I think most everyone listening to this can probably take something from that because as you said, chronic stress is one of the single biggest problems we see. So no doubt that's applicable. Um, to take this into or to kind of sum all this up. So we've talked through all these different components of metabolic adaptation or metabolism, what comprises each. So what can we do to kind of mitigate or work around metabolic adaptation? Absolutely. So the first thing that I want to get across to people is we have to realize that metabolic adaptation is a natural part of the process. So we can't completely avoid it because the only way to do so is to stay out of deficit and not lose body fat at all. However, we can do things to minimize some of the factors that are downregulated during this process and to make the process of dieting an easier, more efficient, and more successful one. And that's where utilizing different techniques and taking a different approach will help you essentially manage and, and kind of steer away from some of the more deleterious and negative effects of metabolic adaptation. So the first thing that I like to look at is the nutrition side, because when it really comes down to it in dieting or in culture in general, we all need to eat. So I always center my, my most of my attention on nutrition first. I think a food first approach, because like I said, not everyone's going to train or not everyone's going to alter their training. So that's the first fundamental process that I look to for metabolic adaptation. And the first thing that I do with nutrition is I look for a slower rate of loss. One of the biggest mistakes people make are going into a very harsh and aggressive deficit. So they not only incur more of those metabolic adaptations quicker, but a lot more harshly. So for instance, taking a smaller, more acute deficit has been shown in the literature uh, to better preserve lean body mass and metabolic rate. So this will attenuate a lot of the negative effects that we see. So it'll help with, you know, making sure that you don't see some of the hormonal changes off the bat. It'll help with maintaining training performance, which can help with the preservation of lean body mass. Uh, it helps to maintain meat levels from dropping as quickly as if you were to take an aggressive approach. So with that, what I really look to do is to put someone in a deficit of around 15 to 20% and not going over a, a total uh, weekly loss or total rate of loss of 0.5 to 1% per week. So generally what that'll look like is in the beginning of a diet, when their calories are higher, stress is lower, they haven't incurred any metabolic adaptation, I might start with a goal of 1% weight loss per week. So if someone is uh, 200 pounds, losing two pounds per week during the initial phase. From there, I, I switch down to 0.5 and even lower, especially if they're getting into lower and lower amounts of body fat. So really what we want to look here is the higher body fat that you have, the more you can lose in the beginning. And as you get leaner and leaner, you're more predisposed to losing lean body mass. So we want to take a slower rate. Now that works in, in two different aspects. First of all, you're going to be incurring more metabolic adaptation. So your rate of loss should slow down. So it, it kind of 
goes proportionally in, in check with one another. The next thing I do from a nutrition aspect is we have to set up calories, uh, macronutrients, and the diet in totality in a more adequate or optimal way. So the first thing I'm looking to do is get a higher protein diet set up. So protein is priority. It's king. You know, protein, eating a higher protein diet is going to help with retaining your muscle mass, which we saw was so important for the process of avoiding fat regain post-diet, but also preserving that metabolically active tissue. It also has a higher uh, thermic effective feeding like we hit on before, and it also helps with satiety. So it's going to help you manage those hunger levels. So that's why protein first. The next thing is I want to set adequate fat intake for the absorption of fat-soluble vitamins and for hormonal production, because we know that most of your hormones are, are created from cholesterol, which comes from fat. And then the rest, I'm filling in the calories from carbs to maintain training performance. And really what I'm trying to do is pair their training or their nutrition to their training. So depending on if I have someone that does CrossFit, we're going to take a higher carb approach. If I have someone that does more aerobic training, we might take more of a, a balanced macronutrient approach. If someone is doing uh, bodybuilding or more body recomposition, I'm looking to increase the carbohydrate content and keeping more of the energy substrate from that to pair up with their activity because that is a process that goes through glycolysis or carbohydrate metabolism. And then also I'm looking for them to eat more high volume whole foods because those help to increase satiety, manage hunger. And we also see that processed foods have a lower thermic effect of feeding as compared to unprocessed foods. So by simply eating higher volume foods, you're going to burn a little bit more calories and get more of that calorie expenditure as a result. From there, I'm looking at, at neat levels. So I actually put neat above in terms of my priority list over training. It's not that I'm saying that I don't look at training because I'm going to hit on that next, mm -hmm. but this is the most modifiable component of your metabolism, which is affected by metabolic adaptation. So I think that that's such a crucial component. So right off the bat, I'm modifying someone's need levels. I'm making sure that if they weren't tracking their steps prior to a diet, that I get at least a one to two week maintenance phase where they're either at maintenance or in a surplus, and I'm tracking what their general movement is. So I could see, where is your baseline? If you're at 8,000 steps, I'm not gonna let you go below that during the diet because we already know that other aspects, you're blinking, you're fidgeting, your posture, they're gonna get down-regulated, and that's gonna decrease your calorie expenditure. So I'm gonna make sure at least we get your steps in check and uh, you know accounted for. From there, my whole thing is preserving as much lean body mass as possible. We don't want just weight loss. We want fat loss. We want body recomposition, you know, in most optimal cases. And that's something I've seen with many of my clients that I can recomp them through the process, especially initially through the diet, because I'm taking a less aggressive deficit. We also have to think about muscle burns proportionally much more calories than does fat tissue. So it burns about three times more calories than fat tissue does. So muscle for every kilogram of muscle tissue, you burn 13 calories as compared to that tissue, which only burns 4.5 calories per kilogram. So that's where we take a smart training approach. I want them resistant training regularly. And this has actually been shown to offset some of the muscle efficiency that we see from metabolic adaptation. So by be, you know, engaging in resistance training, you'll actually decrease some of that 20% reduction in skeletal muscle work efficiency because those studies were actually done on people that were not resistance trained. And then we also want to focus on maintaining an adequate stimulus to maintain muscle. I always tell people, you know, what you were doing previous to the diet, you should be maintaining that. Don't go to a completely different training style, especially off the bat. Towards the end of a diet, if you need to pull back on volume and, and auto-regulate your training, by all means, because you're at a, you know, a more aggressive deficit and you've lost more weight, you have less leverages, things of that sort. But really what built muscle will preserve muscle. And a lot of people have this misconception that they need to burn in the cuts and do high volume work, high reps. If that's not what built your muscle tissue, you're sending a completely different signal and making what's supposed to be an anaerobic activity, an aerobic activity. So more like a cardio or circuit training session. And if that's what you like to do by all means, but it shouldn't be a huge deviation. So really what I'm trying to do is looking at like I hit on previously, I'm looking at weight training and resistance training as a way to either increase lean body mass or preserve muscle tissue rather than as a means of calorie expenditure. Because honestly, it's a pretty poor means of burning calories. Let's leave that to the diet and let's leave that to the cardio. And then from there, there's other just lifestyle management techniques that I use. Like I hit on before, sleep is a huge component of this that many people overlook. Having a good sleep routine Maintaining sleep quality is going to help with the retention of muscle. It's going to help with hunger hormone fluctuations. It's going to help with uh, satiety hormone management. So you're going to be less hungry. You're going to retain more muscle. 
Um, you're going to have better hormonal status, especially from growth hormone and testosterone secretions that happen during the night. So these are major components that people overlook when they, they think about dieting, they think about fat loss. They only think about the diet and they think about training and potentially cardio and they overlook other aspects of it. They think about it. It's only calories in calories out. So let's manage the calories. Let's manage the training volume and let's do some cardio. And there's so many other aspects. And the last thing I really like to center home on, and I monitor with my biofeedback with people is their recovery. I'm looking at that both from a training perspective. I'm looking at that from a cardio perspective. So I don't, I personally don't include high intensity cardio and honestly, any of my programs at this point, just due to the recovery debt that it incurs. Mm -hmm. And it really, we, we've seen that it isn't more optimal for fat loss on a head to head perspective as compared to aerobic, you know, steady state. So with that, I'm really trying to make sure that the recovery in all aspects of their life are optimized because that's going to help with preserving lean body tissue. And it's also going to help with them maintaining adherence to the diet, which is the king. So really when it comes back to it, these are all strategies to help manage metabolic adaptation. But even if we didn't have metabolic adaptation, this is what I consider to be the most optimal way to diet in general. And then from there, I tell my clients, realize the rest is out of your control. Whatever else is happening, we have optimized and set up your program to be 100% optimized in terms of our approach. And we will incur some difficulties, some obstacles, some challenges, and some setbacks. But these are things that we've already come to expect, we've um, become aware of, and now we're able to tackle head on. Absolutely. And I think one of the coolest recurring themes of all this has been so much of this is under your control, right? So don't tell yourself, whatever, it's my genetics, it's my metabolism. I can never create a physique I want. There might be, as you said, some bumps along the road, but you are absolutely in control of so much of this. And that's such a cool theme of this entire podcast. I know this is going to be required listening for a lot of my clients who are currently in ballast phases. Um, once again, man, you absolutely crushed this. Uh, I think you outdid yourself on your last show even. So much application from this episode. I know you also have another call here coming up pretty shortly. So I don't want, I want to let you run. Um, before I do so, will you just tell people once again where they can find you in anything at all that you would like to plug? Absolutely. So you guys can find me at the best place is honestly on Instagram. It's at Brandon DeCruz underscore. I also have a website, Brandon DeCruz Fit. If you guys have any inquiries, any questions, feel free to email me. That's the best place to find me these days. And it's bdecruzfitness at gmail.com. And one thing that I just want to, you know, uh, encompass this all with is realize that it isn't, there isn't something wrong with you. There's not, you know, you don't have a broken metabolism. And really when we look back at it, it isn't, your metabolic rate is not the most influential part in whether you gain or lose weight. We actually have studies that disprove that. It's your levels of physical activity, both in terms of how, you know, how successful you are at weight loss, but also at weight loss maintenance. So realize this is a natural part of the process. If you encounter setbacks and some limitations during the process of fat loss dieting, it's completely normal. And it's something that A, we should expect and B, just realize that it's something that can be, it's not insurmountable. So I always try to get past, you know, across to people. This is a challenge. Anything worthwhile is worth sacrificing for and work, worth working hard for. And the same thing can be applied to fat loss. So don't let these stumbles across the road uh, set you back or you know limit your self-beliefs. Allow this to be a challenge to you, to utilize the things you learned in today's podcast to go forward and move past this. Absolutely. And again, I think anyone stuck right now <laughs> listening to this episode, you'll absolutely know how to navigate through it. So again, man, I appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for your time, dude. Absolutely, man. Looking forward to the next one.